when you're recording. We'll just show you. Okay, that's good. Testing, one, two. Hey, this is Kelly McEvers, and I am standing outside of NPR West, where this podcast is in part produced. We would love to know what you think of Embedded, so please go to npr.org slash embedded survey and let us know. Okay, here's the show. I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded, an NPR podcast where we take a story from the news and go deep. And today we are talking about this story. Greenland has one of the world's highest rates of suicide. A spike in suicide attempts at a remote indigenous community in Canada, sending alarm bells all the way to the capital. There's been 101 suicide attempts since September. We're at risk of becoming the, the suicide capital of the world. In the Arctic, people are killing themselves. Young people. People with years and years ahead of them. Dead by suicide before their 25th birthdays. To find out why, Rebecca Hersher went to Greenland for three months in the winter. She lived with the people she was reporting on. She ate with them, went to church with them, and spent long weeks inside, trapped by winter storms. And what she found out is these suicides are happening for a lot of reasons. The majority of people in Greenland are Inuit, but Greenland is under the control of Denmark. Over the last half century, the Inuit language and religion have been disappearing. People feel more and more isolated. So Becky got to know some of these people in a tiny town on the edge of this massive ice sheet that covers most of Greenland. And that's when the trouble started. One day, the story she was reporting on crashed into her life. And for 24 hours, she didn't know how it was going to end. HubSpot supports Embedded because they love great stories. That's all. HubSpot wants to get back to the episode early, too. So that's what we'll do. Okay, so we're going to do things a little bit differently today. Becky's going to start by just telling you a story. And then I'll come back and talk to her about that story, and then we'll hear what happened next. Here's Becky. The first death happened on a Saturday. Peely Christiansen spent the morning at home, drinking beers and hanging out with his older brother. There isn't a lot of work in town, and a lot of people drink. That afternoon, Peely and his brother heard someone banging on their door, yelling, Polar bear! It's a polar bear! They looked out the window on the frozen fjord a couple miles away. They could see the bear. Hunting bears and reindeer and seals and birds, it's always been a big part of life in the Arctic. For thousands of years, it was just about survival. Now it's about survival and about tradition. The polar bear was coming toward town. A little drunk and really excited, Peely and his buddies ran out to their fishing boat fired up the motor and nosed through the slushy ice of the harbor of their village, Tinitekilak, until they were as close as they could get to the bear. Then they got out of the boat and stood on the ice and pointed their rifles at the enormous animal. For Inuit people, hunting a polar bear is a big deal. The bears have huge territories. It's rare to actually see one around Tinitekilak. And because of their size and ferocity, they're not easy to kill. It's usually a group effort. 
So according to tradition, the first four people to shoot it share the meat and the glory. That day, it was Peely who shot the polar bear. That evening, Peely went out drinking to celebrate. The next morning, he was dead. He had killed himself. He was 22. Julius Nielsen was standing right next to Peely Christiansen when Peely shot the polar bear. They were standing there on the frozen ocean, shoulder to shoulder. Peely's face was flushed with beer or adrenaline. Peely was just standing there, rifle still over his shoulder, staring at the bear. And Julius was screaming at him. If Peely wasn't going to use the rifle, he should just hand it over. Julius was older than Peely, more experienced, a better shot, probably. But Peely kept the gun and dropped to the ground, and he shot the bear. And he was so happy. Killing a polar bear was a rare enough occurrence that everyone in town celebrated. Lots of drinking and gossiping about who shot it and who didn't. That night, after they dragged the bear back to town, Julius had dinner with Peely's family at their house. But Peely didn't show up. He was out with his friends. Their partying lasted well into the night. The next day was Sunday. Julius woke up early, around 5 a.m., feeling great. The weather looked clear enough for seal hunting. He fed his sled dogs in the morning light and went back home for a cup of coffee. And then at 8, his phone rang. It was Peely's brother. He was breathing hard. Stupid, stupid Peely, he said. He killed himself. Julius didn't believe him. Peely? Happy Peely? Not that guy. You're joking, said Julius. Look out the window, said Peely's older brother. Julius looked out the window. There was Peely's older brother, standing on the frozen harbor a few hundred yards away, next to his ice-bound fishing boat. They made eye contact, and Julius felt his stomach turn into a knot as he hung up the phone, put on his jacket, and ran across the ice. Inside the boat, he saw Peely's body. I'm not going to describe it for you, not because it's gruesome, which it is, but because describing how a person takes his own life is potentially dangerous for other people who are at risk for suicide. But Peely was dead, and his body was there for everyone in town to see. Before he hugged Peely's brother, or got his own gloves on even, Julius covered his friend's body with a tarp. And then he hugged Peely's brother, and then he called the police. Julius carried Peely's body to the health clinic, which also serves as the town meeting house, hotel, post office, and church for Tini Tekilak. The nurse there was Peely's aunt. She couldn't bring herself to clean the body, so Julius did it himself. He cut Peely's favorite dress shirt down the back and tucked it around his friend's stiff body, trying to make it look as neat as he could. Peely Christiansen was buried a week later. Julius brought his family to the funeral. All that next week, people were walking around in a daze, trying to explain the inexplicable to themselves and to their families. Julius's 13-year-old son had loved spending time with Peely. They went dog sledding and played video games together. The boy kept asking his father how someone who seemed so happy could kill himself. It's just not possible to explain, Julius said. Peely had never mentioned suicidal thoughts had never attempted suicide before, at least that Julius knew of. And yet, there was no way his death was an accident. 
he had definitely killed himself. I don't know why, and I can't explain why, Julius told his son. I'm sorry. He told the boy that as much as Peely's death hurt, eventually he would learn to live with it. He would have to. A few days later, in the larger town on the other side of the glacier, a 10th grade boy named Peter Pilanot broke up with his girlfriend. It was on a Thursday. By all accounts, it hadn't been that serious, but anyway, she was his first girlfriend. On Friday, Peter and his friends hung out and drank beers. It wasn't that hard to get beer in town, even if you were underage. Usually, Peter was a pretty quiet kid, but that evening, as he sat in his friend's living room and got drunker and drunker, he started yelling, screaming, crying. He said no one loved him. He said he hated his life. He was angry. His friends, other 15- and 16- and 17-year-old kids, yelled back. Get over it, man, they said. Stop drinking. You're too drunk. He didn't even seem to know where he was anymore. Finally, around midnight, someone's older brother walked Peter up the street, through the snow, to his house. Peter lived with his grandparents. By the time he got home, they were already asleep. When his grandparents woke up in the morning, they found Peter's body. He was 15. Peter and Peely didn't know each other, at least not well. But they had friends in common, and that part of Greenland only has about 3,000 people total. So Peter most certainly knew of Peely's death. And once Peter died, everyone knew that there had been two suicides in two weeks. And everyone was wondering the same thing. Would there be another one? All right, so Becky is here with me now, and I want to ask you, you got to this town like two weeks after the second death. What was it like? It was really, really tense. Like, you could feel everyone in town was just really nervous. Parents were keeping their kids home from school. Kids were talking about it, like, at soccer practice or playing on the playground. I went to a bar, and there were people talking about it at the bar, which is like the saddest Friday night ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was just everywhere. It was all anyone could talk about. And and is the reason that they were so nervous is that there had been two, that they were afraid that this was going to happen again? Is this a pattern? Is this normal? Yeah, it actually has its own name. It's a suicide cluster. Mm-hmm. So a suicide cluster is when people who are already at risk have a higher risk of committing suicide after somebody kills themselves, who they know. And that's something that happens a lot in Greenland, in these small, isolated communities. Like, imagine if you know all of your neighbors, you know all of the people in town. When someone dies by suicide, you definitely knew them. And so there's a higher risk for another suicide after that happens. So you get there, and everybody's nervous that this is going to happen again. And who do you talk to? How do you start talking to people? Well, the first thing was that I really needed a translator because there's a different dialect in that town than in most of Greenland. And there really are not that many people who speak both English and that dialect. So I asked, like, everyone I knew in Greenland. Everyone. Like, 
the secretary at the elementary school down the street from where I was staying, the ski coach for the high school. I asked the mayor of the capital city of Greenland. And from everyone I asked, I found five names. And four of them had full-time jobs. They couldn't work with me. Mm-hmm. But there was one guy who was like, sure, yeah, I'll work with you. I don't mind talking about suicide. I can do it. And it was Julius Nielsen, that guy who was standing next to Peely when he shot the polar bear, who prepared his friend's body for burial, who couldn't explain it to his son because it was too upsetting. Right. He was going to be my translator. So, I mean, this is somebody who's right in the middle of the story who's going to help you report the story. Yeah, so it's really not ideal from a reporting perspective. Like, you want to work with local colleagues who are not in the story. You want people who are objective. And Julius, he's not a journalist. He's a hunter. Sometimes he's an electrician or a plumber, a handyman. And he's really, really connected to the story. But he was the only one who was available. So in this case, we just went for it. And from the get-go, he was pretty good. Like... He's really well-known around town. He's a friendly guy. When he introduced himself to me, he said, Hi, I'm Julius Caesar. Like, just a laid-back person and someone who really puts people at ease, which is helpful if you're trying to meet people in a place you don't really know anyone. Like, here he is, one of the first times we talked. He's just telling me about his girlfriend. All right, tell me your name and what you do. Uh, Julius Nielsen. I'm a hunter, tourist guide, and electrician. (laughs) And Family man. Family man. Four kids. Four kids. Girlfriend. Uh, girlfriend the last 20 years. So we have been together since we were teenagers. And I even felt like I was getting to know him as a friend. Like, we went dog sledding together. I met his son. He invited me over to his house for dinner the second week I was there. He actually pointed it out to me as we were walking through town so I would know where it was. He was like, look, that's my house up on the hill. It's the red one. Uh, and so things are just going really well. And then one evening, we do this interview with these guys, and something in Julius breaks. Like, it all starts to go wrong. Test, test, test. So here's what happened. All right. We go into this interview with a couple of 18-year-olds in town. And these kids said they were making a video about suicide prevention. They had heard I was there, and they wanted to tell me about it. Seems like a pretty low-key interview. It's in the evening. So we sit down with these two guys, and they don't speak much English at all. So Julius is translating from that local language to English. And he starts by introducing them. Their names are Malik. His name is Malik Davison, 20 years old. And Gio. Gio Josvesen, 18 years old. So they start out just telling us about the video that they're making, about suicide prevention. And they're speaking in Greenlandic, and things are pretty calm. And then one of them, Gio, starts to talk about something way more personal. He's saying how that night that the teenager Peter, the 15-year-old, killed himself, Gio was there. That Gio was actually that guy who walked Peter home, the last guy to see him. And it is just eating him up. He can't stop talking about it. He's talking about that night, and then he's talking about how he himself used to be suicidal. 
He's only 18 years old, and he's talking about how he thought about killing himself for years when he was younger. And then he's talking about how his little brother, who's just 15 years old, is suicidal now. Like, for weeks, this kid has been trying to kill himself in their home. Julius, sitting right next to me, has shut down. His eyes have just glazed over. He looks so upset. And Guillaume has switched into English like he just needs to talk directly to me. He just has to tell someone what happened that night with Peter, how angry he was before he killed himself. Angry. Yeah. Very angry. So I try and try and try and again, but I can't stop him. So he is going home, and day after, he is dying, suiciding. And I cannot explain this. So we keep talking for like an hour. And eventually, Julius snaps out of it. He starts contributing again. He's translating. But honestly, at this point, he and I are both in over our heads. Like, how on earth do you react to something like this when someone tells you something so personal and so upsetting, especially if it's your community that he's talking about? And as it goes on, we both try to just make sure that Gio is okay. Like, that's the one thing we can do in this situation is just make sure that he's not suicidal. First of all, are you okay? Do you feel okay today? Yes, of course. Are you going to be okay tomorrow? Yes. And he really insists. Like, a couple more times I ask him, a couple more times he says, yeah, I'm fine. And all he can do is take his word for it. So then, as quickly as it started, Gio changes the subject again and insists we move on and it's late and we leave. So what happened after that? So we leave, and Julius goes home, and I go home. And in the morning, we're supposed to meet to interview this teacher. And I show up in the morning, and Julius isn't there. So we sort of bumble through the interview without a translator, and I text Julius, ask him where he is. And then an hour later, I text him again. Ten minutes after that, I text him again. I call him, and at first I'm really annoyed, like, This is hard to do without a translator. But then after a couple hours, I start to get really nervous. And then after five or six calls, I start to get really scared. And in the early afternoon, I start to go looking for him. Hey. Hey. Nothing from Julius? Nothing. No. Um, I think I'm going to walk up to his house. Yeah, try that. I'm actually quite worried. Hey. Is Julius your dad? Julius? Is your father? No? Do you know where Julius Nielsen lives? Which house? No? So here's what I know at that point. Julius is not at his house. He's not at the one bar in town. He's not at the school where his son goes to school. So where is he? He's most likely left town. And when people leave town, that part of Greenland, they always take a gun, like for safety against polar bears. But it means he's alone and upset and he's armed. And I know from spending a bunch of time with him that a lot of people in his life have killed themselves in the past. His brother, two cousins, an uncle, 
There was one year in middle school that he told me six kids in his class killed themselves. And there's Peely, his friend, whose body he found just a couple weeks before that. And there are alarm bells like going off in my head because I know that there are like two big risk factors for suicide. One is having close friends or family who have died by suicide, and another is having easy access to lethal weapons. So in my mind, this is like a perfect storm, and I'm so worried. But I can't find him. And once I've called everyone I know in town and looked everywhere I can, I just have to go home. And at 10 p.m., I send him my 11th unanswered text of the day. It just says, please come to the interview at 8.30 a.m. tomorrow. And then I just lie awake. And at 5 a.m., my phone buzzes. And he says, okay, see you at 8.30. He's okay. Yeah. He shows up and apologizes and... He tells me that he was feeling really overwhelmed, which I knew, after that interview with Gio. And he was feeling scared. Not for himself, but for all of the young people in town. It was like the first time he realized that all the young people were in danger. So he didn't know what to do. And he went home and his girlfriend said, Well, listen, if working with this reporter from the U.S. is upsetting you, then just don't do it anymore. Quit. So he did. For one day. He left and went hunting and turned off his phone, and he intended to just not come back, never work with me again. But when he came home that night, he felt less upset, and he thought, maybe I'll just work one more day. And when he came back, the first thing we did was go and check on Gio. And Gio was okay. And then we told a social worker about our interview with Gio, just in case the social worker could check in. And then after that, Julius felt a little less upset, and he agreed to work another day, and then another. And he was feeling better, which was good. But I didn't feel better. I actually felt worse. Why? Uh, because I had to worry about Julius. Once all of that happened, Julius became someone who was really real to me, and his problems and his worries became my problems and my worries. Like, you go all this way to a place that is not your home, and you learn so much about all of the things that are difficult about living there. In this case, suicide. Julius has had to live with a lot of suicide. And now I still worry about him and about his family, and I wonder, like, every day whether there has been another suicide in that town. Because statistically, there will be. And statistically, Julius will know that person. And that makes me feel really bad. How often do you check in with him? I send him a Facebook message every couple weeks or so, and usually he doesn't get back to me. He's out dog sledding or hunting. He insists his life is really great. I mean, Greenland is beautiful. The glacier is gorgeous. He gets to spend all of his time outside. But I can't help but worry. And this idea of acquiring people to worry about, right? He's another person on your list now that you have to worry about. And if you keep doing this kind of work, and I feel like you will keep doing this kind of work, 
Does that mean every month, every year, you'll just have a longer list of people to worry about and to check in with? Yeah, it feels really daunting. Like, where is the breaking point? Or when do you start to forget? Like, I start to wonder, if I don't start to forget about people, eventually I'll be overwhelmed and I won't be able to do my job. You've done a bunch of stories about Arctic suicides. Um, Obviously, getting the word out about it is something that you feel is important. Um, Do you think you would do it again, knowing what you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I, I don't really know why. There are, there are things that we tell ourselves about why we do that, like why we would leave people who love us in places that are familiar and comfortable and go to places where we don't know anyone and that aren't comfortable. And they have to do with, like, telling important stories and bringing people to places that they would never be able to go on their own. And those things are true, but they are not the only reason that I do that stuff. I do it because it feels really exciting. And because once you start to realize that there's a whole world of people to worry about, it's kind of hard to not go meet them all. This episode was reported by Rebecca Hersher with support from the John Alexander Project. It was produced by Chris Benderev. We had editing help from Nathan Duell, Joe Richmond, Vicki Valentine, Ali McAdam, and Mark Silver. Digital production is by Alexander McCall. Original music is by Colin Wamsgans. The show is executive produced by me, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grundman. Our project manager is Kasia Podbielski. You can hear more NPR on your local public radio station on another show I host called All Things Considered. We will be back next week where we will be in a school that, like so many schools across the U.S., is about to get shut down. Where are the kids going to go now? And why are y'all closing the school? No one could give me an answer for the question, why are y'all closing it? Are they getting education this year? Like, if he goes to another school, is he really going to be prepared to be a 12th grader? I've been here for 17 years. My heart's here. So why am I going to pick up and leave them without a teacher for three months? I'll be waving the white flag at the last day of school, I guess. I'm going down with the ship. Oh, and there's a new NPR podcast. It's called Code Switch, and it's about how race and identity crash into everything else in our lives. Find it on NPR One or npr.org slash podcasts. I'm Kelly McEvers. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.